This is one of those passages that if you were not just preaching straight through a book, you would probably never choose to preach. And I thought about skipping it, but I knew you would notice because it's a whole chapter. And uh, no, I knew you would want me to, to do it and to, to preach it, and so I have faithfully tried to uh, study and understand what the Lord is saying here. These seven woes are given to the scribes and the Pharisees, and this will be the last time, basically, that Jesus will have a one-on-one conversation with them. He will give the Olivet Discourse mainly to his disciples. And so this is kind of the last shot he has at presenting the gospel to them and bringing them to the awareness that they are sinners and need a Savior. And so uh, our tendency is to be like them, and so we need to hear it as well. I'm going to read 1 through 15, and then we will read the rest of it as I deal with it in the sermon. Matthew 23, 1 through 15. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law, and most of your translations have scribes, the teachers of the law and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you to do. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the places of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted in the marketplace and have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. For you, nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut out the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to get in. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win one single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Now, before we get to the passage, did you notice in your translation, probably, there is no verse 14. 14 in NIV is put in a footnote, and yet in the New King James, the King James, and the New American Standard, it's included in the text. And the reason it's included there, because it is a woe, and it is found in Mark, and it's found in Luke, And we don't have, uh, you know, back then when they were making copies of the Word of God, they didn't have a Xerox machine. And so it's easy to see how somebody writing down a woe accidentally dropped one or added one. So it's a textual issue there. Uh, Not a big deal, but just wanted you to know why the Bible doesn't count right in that passage. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the inspiration 
of the Word of God. Thank you that you inspired Matthew to write down the words of Jesus. And that we have them here on the page before us. Give us understanding, open our eyes. We might see, our ears that we might hear, and our hearts that we might love. And free our, our wills that we might follow in what we know. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 1978, does that ring a bell with anybody? Well, if you got back and looked at what happened in that year, you would find out that's when the Jim Jones massacre took place in Guyana. Jim Jones and that movement started in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Jim Jones was a Pentecostal preacher. He was into faith healing and fake healing. He actually had some people fake healing so people would put more uh, trust and faith in him. He was very charismatic, but he was a charlatan. The center point of his life was socialism. He studied communism. He studied Marx and Nietzsche and all those kinds of guys. And he really believed that the Bible was a secondary source uh, and communism and the works on socialism was his primary uh, Bible, so to speak. He actually believed that he was the divine manifestation of socialism. And what he wanted everybody to do is to be involved in this communist movement where they would share everything alike. He got popular because he was involved in the civil rights movement. And he was one of the first people in the area, or even in the United States, to have a totally integrated church. And so he got a lot of political exposure as well as religious exposure. But when somebody gets that fame and power, if they are not of good character, it goes the other way. It became soon known that he was a man who was power-hungry, very controlling, abusive to children. I could tell you things that would make you sick to your stomach. He was involved in immorality with women in his church and immorality with men in his church. He wanted all the people to give their money to the organization. And so the government began to get wind of all this kind of stuff and began to investigate. And so Jim Jones came up with this idea that he was about to be attacked with a nuclear bomb. And so he had to move, and then he had to move again, and eventually he got so nervous that he moved out of the United States to Guyana. And there you know what happened. But let's say you had a son or a daughter, and you were coming into their bedroom. And they were packing their suitcase. And you said, where are you going? I'm going to Guyana with Jim Jones. What would you tell them? You would tell them everything I told you and more. You would not leave out one gory, immoral detail because you would say, if you follow this man, if you follow this man, you will, lose, you will ruin your life, you might lose your life, and you might lose your soul. And you would say whatever it took to make them stay at home, if you could. You would do what was called an intervention if you have to. You would use tough and hard language. That scenario 
is a scenario we have in Matthew 23. That Jesus is trying to wake up the scribes and the Pharisees. He's trying to throw all that he can at them to make them see what they are and what they're doing and what happens to people who follow them. And so this is not to be seen as some guy, you know, you read these woes and you think of somebody that's losing their temper and their, the veins in their neck and heads are popping out and they're yelling and screaming and stuff. This is a passage that I think Jesus speaks out of love. Love for people that he doesn't want to perish. And it says in verse, in the last part of this chapter, it says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have longed to gather you as children, as chicks under my wing. And so you have to understand that Jesus is addressing them out of this desire to have them wake up to who they are and what they are and come to him for safety and salvation. And it changes the whole way you read this passage if you see it like that. These are hard words from a heart of one who loves somebody dearly. Let's look at this passage under just three words. The warning, the woes, and the weeping. The warning. Jesus is talking to the crowds and the disciples And some people debate, scholars debate whether the scribes and the Pharisees are even there. I don't think it's even worth a debate. It's obvious that they're there, that Jesus addresses them, you scribes and Pharisees. If they weren't there, there wouldn't be a you. (laughs) It's not that they've left the scene and while they're not here to defend themselves, that Jesus unloads on them and talks about them behind their back. They are obviously maybe on the edge of the crowd and they're not the main audience, but he's talking to them. And the fact that he's talking to them is shocking to a lot of people because the scribes and the Pharisees were the well-thought-out people in the, in the community. We think of them as bad people. The, the Pharisees were the holy, fundamental, religious people who tried to keep the law and more than that. And the scribes were the lawyers of the day that studied theology all the time. And so when, when Jesus attacks or, or, or addresses them with these woes, everybody's like, hey, those guys are our elders and deacons. Those are the Boy Scouts of the town. That's the town council. And they're a little bit shocked. But they're going to get a little more shocked. What Jesus says is these men are people who put these burdens on your back They don't lift a finger to help you carry them. This burden is the law of God. And they weigh them down. And not only do they not lift a finger to help you, they don't even follow their own preaching. That they don't even try to do what they tell you to do. They don't care to do that. But Jesus says, listen to what they say, but don't do what they do. That's a difficult passage. But I think what he's saying is when they teach you the Word of God... You do what the Word says, but don't follow them as a guide or an example because they don't do what they ask you to do. And then in verses 13 and 15, you get into the first two woes because they illustrate for us the danger of being a scribe or a Pharisee 
or having a scribe or Pharisee's heart. Listen to what it says again. Woe to you, teachers of the law, and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves are not entering the kingdom of heaven, and you will, let, you will not let those who are trying to enter in. In other words, you're, you, you want to go to the kingdom of heaven, then if you follow the Pharisees, they're going to shut the door in your face. They're not going to allow you to go because they don't go there themselves. And then it says in, in the second part of that uh, verse 15, Woe to you, teachers of the law, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win one convert. And when he comes one, when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. And you begin to say, that's not the Jesus that I've heard about. That he's telling people that the way you're going, you're not going to heaven. As a matter of fact, you're going to hell. And he says it again in verse thirty. Uh, Three, I believe it is, yes. How can you escape being cast away from the presence of God? You see, this is not just another Protestant denomination that Jesus is dealing with. This is not just a difference of, you know, how we baptize people or how we arrange our church government or when we worship or how often we celebrate communion, or whether we sing hymns or psalms, or whether we have overhead projectors, or whether we have guitars and piano. You know, it's not that kind of thing. This is a fundamental difference. This is whether you go to heaven or go to hell. This is where you spend eternity with God, or you cast into outer darkness. You know, we have this image that people use all the time that, that God's up on a mountain. You know, God's up there. And all the religions are, are going the same way. They're just taking a different route. There's a Greek word for that. Baloney. <laughs> R.C. Sproul does a survey. Uh, his organization does now. And what they do is they ask people, a lot of them are evangelicals. I want to say the survey is mainly divided into evangelicals and non-evangelicals. But when you ask them, when he asked last year, 2022, that other religions besides Christianity provide a way to God. And I think almost 70% of people said yes. If you ask the scribes and the Pharisees, what must I do to be saved? What would they say? What must I do to enter the kingdom of God? I'm sure what they would have said is that you have to obey the law. You have to be better than you are worse. And when you're weighed in the scales of life, that if you're weighed, if you're, you're good outweighs your bad, you're in. And if not, they would not have give you any certainty. What I do with my sin? Well, you just got to overcome it with these laws and these sacrifices. Nicodemus came to Jesus and Jesus said, hey, unless uh, you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. 
That means your, your heart has to be changed. You, you have to become a new creature in Christ. The scribes and the Pharisees would never entertain telling you that you had to be born again. You had to have some kind of radical change of your inner being. They would just say, you've got to keep the law. If you're good, if you're good, you'll be saved. And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father. No man comes up the mountain except through me. Ligon Duncan told this story that's kind of alarming. He said there was an intern in Jackson who was giving his testimony and he said that he was, uh, he said he lived a life of debauchery. That's how the young man described it. He was in college, a lot of party and drinking and other stuff that go with intoxication, as you can imagine. And he said he was at a wedding and he said the minister read 1 Corinthians 13 with no comment. And he said he was convicted that I don't know that kind of love. I can't love like that. I need love like that. I, I, I'm, I'm away from God because I don't know that love. So he went home and he made an appointment with his pastor. And he asked his pastor, he had heard this and he says, by the way, he's honest. He said, I hadn't been there in some time. But I went to the minister in church and said, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be born again? And the man said, born again? Don't get caught up in all that stuff. You don't need to be born again. He said, fortunately in the providence of God, that young man also knew another minister by the name of Bob Cargo, who used to be the minister in Oxford. And he went to Bob Cargo, and Bob Cargo said, I'll tell you how to be saved. And he shared with him the gospel. If people came to you and you and said, what must I do to be saved? What would you say? Would you say, just try harder, be better, be better than you are worse? I hope you won't because I have said from kindergarten to the pulpit, yearly, often, the gospel is what we do when you join the church. You have to make a profession of faith, and it's as easy as A, B, C. You have to admit that you're a sinner. And because you're a sinner, you deserve the wrath and curse of God. There's no hope for you. You have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and He came into the world to live that you might be righteous and die that you might be and die on the cross that you might be forgiven. And see, you commit your life to live for Him. And those are the three questions you answer every time you join the church. A, B, C. Admit, believe, confess. And if your minister can't answer that, or your elder can't answer that, you're in danger. Moving on. The seven woes, we now only have five, we dealt with them. Let me read those five, beginning at 16. Woe to you blind scribes. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anybody swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say if anyone swears by the altar, 
it means nothing. But if anybody swears by the gift on the altar, you're bound by that oath. You blind men, what is greater, the gift or the altar that makes a gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law, the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth or tithe your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You have, should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, Pharisees, scribes and teachers of the law. You hypocrites. You clean out the outside of the cup and dish. But on the inside, you're full of greed and indulge of blind Pharisees. First, clean out the inside of the cup and the dish and the outside will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside they're full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people to be righteous, but on the inside you're full of, you're full of unrighteousness. You're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. What is a woe? A woe is the opposite of blessed. Remember when we studied the Sermon on the Mount, it's the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who pour in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are they, you know, and the word blessed there, some people unfortunately translate that happy. And the word should not be translated happy. It should be, the word comes, the, the Greek word is from where we get the word eulogy. It means God speaks well of this kind of life. That God speaks well of somebody who's poor and humble and thirsts and seeks after righteousness. And a woe is just the opposite. God is not pleased and God does not speak well of people who do these sorts of things. So the blessing is on one side and the woe is on the other side. It's a denunciation. It's a judgment against that sort of living. There are seven woes, really, but those seven woes are really one problem. Did you notice how many times it said, hypocrites, you hypocrites? There's seven woes. Six times it says, woe to you hypocrites. And so what Jesus is addressing is hypocrisy. And what is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy came out of the Greek theater where what people would do is when they had a, had a part, they would wear a mask. And so when they were saying that part, they'd stick the mask up and you would know it wasn't them, but somebody, they were speaking as, quote, a part. And gradually it came to mean somebody who's playing a role, who's not really what they are. Now one humorous thing I saw was where a man went to the Sunday school class, he was teaching the kids and he said, uh, why would somebody call me a Christian? And one little boy said, because they don't know you. The little boy knew that the guy wasn't the real deal. And that's what it is. He's not the real deal. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that hypocrites are always playing for the crowd. They're always looking for the applause. They're always looking to be patted on the back and things like that. And that's the reason they do it. 
They fast, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, and they disfigure their face. They want you to know they're hungry. And he says, when you fast, don't let people know you're fasting. And when they pray, they pray on the street corner. Loud prayers, long prayers. It's almost like they can't wait to get to the temple. They've got to stop and pray right there. And then it says, when they give, they sound the trumpets and blow the horn so you'll see them drop their money in the collection plate or the box or whatever it is. So easy to be a hypocrite. So easy to do stuff to be praised. I get in my car sometimes after visiting the hospital and say, why did I go? Did I go for out of love or go that somebody would see me being a good pastor? Why do you do some of the things you do? It's so easy to be a hypocrite. To do it for the love of recognition. Jesus says not only are they hypocrites, but he goes on to describe these hypocrites are blind to their own condition. In verse 16, they're blind guides. They, they, they're, they're not only blind, but they're not aware of their blindness, so they're leading other people around. I thought, you know, if I went to the art gallery, Bill Lester said, hey, go to the art gallery. It's going to be a great show there. And I get there, and this guy's got on uh, sunglasses and a cane, and he's tapping around, and he says, I want to show you these vivid colors that he hadn't seen. That's, that's Jesus is what he's saying here. They don't know. They're blind to the fact. This happened to me Sunday night. We were sitting back there in the back about where Les and Patty are sitting, I guess. And I had my suit on, and I had some observant fellow behind me named Will Wood. And Will tapped me on the shoulder and said, it looked like a bird anointed you. I couldn't see it, you know. And so I said, well, maybe it was no big deal. And Sarah looks and said, it looked like a bird anointed you. And then I was coming out and Lee being the observant guy he is, looked like a bird got you, you know. And so on the way out, people saw something I hadn't seen all day. But they were gracious enough that, to let me know so I wouldn't wear it again. They're blind to their silly vows. I, I swear by the temple and then they said well you didn't keep your word well it didn't mean anything because I didn't swear by the goal on the temple I swore by you swore by the the, the altar I, that doesn't mean anything you got to swear by the sacrifice on the altar and people were saying that's childish that's foolish that's kind of like I had my hands folded I had my fingers crossed it didn't mean anything and hypocrites are blind to their condition they major on minors, verse 23. They, they give the tithe, but they ignore the most important part of the law. It's almost like if I tithe, everything else is taken care of. And in that passage, I, I made in that verse I made note of, the one that we don't have in the NIV and you don't have in the ESV, but it's in the King James and that... It says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You devour widows' houses. And you make a show of lengthy prayers. Therefore, you'll be punished more severely. 
The reason I think that fits in there is because these people were bragging about the way that they were tithing everything. We give, we give not out of the net, we give out of the gross. We give everything. We tithe our Christmas presents. We tithe our birthday presents. We tithe our Father's Day gifts. We, we tithe everything. But it's like Bernie Madoff tithing. The heart's not good. Yeah, I stole a million dollars, but I tithe. It's so easy to point to the little things and think they eliminate the big things. And how many little things does it take to erase a big thing? And you live in this tension of, of, of making the trivial important so it can outweigh what is really important. God cares about justice and mercy and walking humbly with your God. They emphasize the external and not the internal. Verse 25. They, they wash the cup, but they wash the outside of the cup and not the inside of the cup. Now they, they want the cup to look clean, you know. Have you ever gone anywhere, and uh, I've had this happen to me, I've gone someplace, I said, you want coffee? I say, sure. And right before they pour the coffee, I look in there and there's like a, a noodle caught on the side of the uh, coffee cup and all of a sudden I've got to come up with a way to say I've had too much coffee you know because uh, my cup's not clean and sometimes I go into general assembly or something I'm gone for some time and I leave my coffee cup on the on the desk and the secretary doesn't clean off my desk you know uh, and when I come back it's growing something in there it could be a science project you know Y'all kids want a science project? Use my coffee cup, you know. Jesus is saying, you know, these Pharisees, they make their phylacteries wide. Those are things that you tie around your head, these leather things, and they have these pouches on them. And you stick in there the law of God, a little bitty, you know, scrolls of things like the, the Shema or, or the Ten Commandments or, or, or something. And literally, the bigger they are, the more holy you are. Because I got, it's kind of like carrying a, a stack of cards around. And every time you get around somebody, you, you, what do you got? That's my prayer list or my memory card. You make sure people see them. That's the reason David said to God, we sang about it, to cleanse my heart. That's why Jesus says everything comes from the heart. It's the reason Jesus internalized and spiritualized the law. It's not murder, it's anger, it's not just adultery, it's lust. It's not just stealing, it's coveting. The internal. You have to have a new heart. And you look good. You look good, but you're dead. Now you forget that. Sometimes you go to a funeral and there's a nice wooden casket and beautiful flowers there and you go, man, that looks so serene. And then you remember, the person in there is dead. And the reason those tombs are whitewashed is because if a Jewish person walked across or ran into a dead body or the bones of the body, it was, they were unclean. 
And so this was the Passover, and so that was the time that they took something out and they marked all the graves where people wouldn't touch them. And what Jesus is saying is, is people who come in contact with you are defiled. They're not made better, they're made worse. You go, wow. Let's quickly go to the last point. Jesus is weeping. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Verse 37, you who would kill the prophets and stone those who I sent to you, how often I have longed to gather you like children under me as a hen gathers her chick under her wings. Anytime Jesus repeats or God repeats a name, it's important. The Bible says, oh, Absalom, Absalom. David was in anguish and grief because of Absalom. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? God was calling him. And Jesus is saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, there's, there's pathos and, and, and emotion and desire in that word. It says in Luke 20 that Jesus comes to the top of the hill and he looks over Jerusalem and he not only says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he weeps. And why is he weeping? Because he's longed, that's a great powerful word, he's longed to see them come to him. And yet every time he sent a prophet, they ignored him or killed him. And these folks are in danger of ignoring Jesus and killing him. Why didn't they come? Why didn't they come? It says they were unwilling to come. The problem is always the will. Martin Luther talked about the bondage of the will. You're free to do anything you want to do, but you can only do what your will is able to do. I want to run a two-hour marathon. I can't do it because of my nature, my age. I can't do it. The will's not able to do it. And so what has to happen is you see your need. You see that we all have this hypocrisy in us. We all have this tendency to, to play games with God and act like something we're not and we're, uh, act like we're clean when our, we know our heart's not and we act like we're alive when we know we're dead. And what we need to do is we need to say, God, change my heart. Make me willing to come. Draw me to yourself and the answer is to these just to come to Jesus there's a story that's probably not true as a lot of these famous preacher stories aren't but it illustrates the point is the reason they continue to be told about a but you could see how it would be true have a forest fire out west that we know nothing about and it just kind of blows through there and it just scorches everything and it's gone and this park ranger gets out and he sees this, this pile of what he thinks is ashes. And he goes over there and he kicks that pile over. And out of those ashes run the chicks. The mother has covered them up so that the fire, of the, the wrath of that fire won't consume them. And what God is offering us is our sins deserve the wrath and curse of God. And Jesus is saying, come to me, come under my wings and I'll shelter you. I'll take the punishment. And that's the reason we say in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. Whatever hell was, he took it for us. So that we could enjoy his heaven. 
So what do we do? We come to him. Our closing hymn has a story behind it. It's one that we don't sing a lot. Charlotte Elliott wrote it. She was an invalid in England. And one day this guest came from uh, Geneva. His name was Dr. Milan. And Dr. Milan started talking to her about salvation. And uh, had she ever come to know the Lord as Lord and Savior. And the young lady was offended and quickly changed the subject. But later he came back and she asked the question, You spoke of coming to Jesus, but how? I'm not fit to come. And he replied, Come just as you are. She did so, and later in her room she wrote the lines of the hymn, and one verse says, Just as I am, poor, wretched, and blind, sight, riches, healing of the mind. Yea, all I need in thee I find, O Lamb of God, I come.